Thanks for joining us for today's sermon. We are always so encouraged to hear how God is working in your life. If the messages of this church have touched you in some way, please share that with us by clicking on the contact tab at lifesc.org to send us an email. And if you would like to give to this ministry, you can do so online to help us bring messages just like this one to you each week. It is our prayer that God blesses you through this message today. I'm really excited about what God gave me. I'm really excited about it because it's amazing. It's such a cool story. Um, and I've learned that sometimes the most effective ways to teach and is uh, take one story out of the Bible and just really, really talk about it, you know, like really get into it. So um, I have a really interesting story today that I want to talk about. And if everybody could uh, turn your Bibles to Second Chronicles, this is Old Testament. I'm an Old Testament guy. I think the Old Testament is amazing. There's a lot of crazy stuff in the Old Testament. And I love talking about it because what I've found is that in order to understand the New Testament, you do have to have a basis in the Old Testament. You have to. So um, 2 Chronicles 7, 13 through 14, or 15, sorry, 13 through 15. I'm reading in the King James. I'm, you know, I'm old school. So uh, this is God speaking. If I shut up heaven that there be no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. That's such a beautiful scripture. And then verse 15 is to me even more beautiful. Now mine eyes shall be open and my ears attend unto the prayer that is made in this place. Such a beautiful scripture. So, um, this morning, I would love to uh, just share with you a story. And um, the, I guess the title that I would give the story is A Mosaic of Mercy. So if everybody could just bow your heads as you're seated, we're going to pray for the rest of the service. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for the opportunity to be in your word. I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to receive it. Let your word fall on good ground in our hearts so that it can spring forth life. And I pray that it would grow in each and every one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. You can all be seated. So, I like to be interactive, if you guys didn't know. Um, so, I want to ask a question. I want to see if anybody can answer it, okay? This is my opinion, all right? It's, it's bi- We're going to talk Bible, okay? But this question is kind of an opinionated question. So, my question to you is aside from Satan and demons and all that stuff, who was the most evil man in the Bible? Most evil human in the Bible? Nebuchadnezzar? That's a good guess. Ahab? That's a really good guess, too. Fortunately, it's not the guy I'm talking about. Those guys are really, really evil, too. But Herod? No. Good guess. So I'll give you a hint. This one's not much of a hint, but it's a hint, okay? We don't talk about him a whole lot. Everybody's like, okay. All right, hint number two, he was a king of Judah in the Old Testament. Anybody? No? Okay. Hint number three, he was one of the longest reigning kings of Judah. Uzziah? No? Anybody? Crickets? Okay. I will give you the answer. His name is King Manasseh. King Manasseh. 
this dude was bad, okay? So um, can anybody name one thing that Manasseh did, good or bad, what, anything? What's that? Idol in the temple of God. Yes, he did. Anybody? Worship. He murdered people. He worshiped in the high places. He sacrificed his kids. Yeah, this is a bad guy we're going to talk about today. <laughs> so I want to show you a chart real quick. Um, I was joking with Caroline, I think. Nate, if you could pull up the chart. Um, that we're going to go through this whole chart today. Scroll down even more. We're going to go through it all. No, I'm just kidding. So the one thing I want to point out is that in this chart, I found this, uh, and it, it looked really cool. It kind of broke everything down um, in a really cool way. So the black square, or the, the color, the white, black, and gray squares are like the time period of how long these kings ruled, okay? So Judah is on the left side. Israel is on the right side. So at this point in history, Judah and Israel had split. So you have the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, and they don't, they kind of fight each other. They weren't very good to each other. Um, on the right, right, you're, all of yours right, uh, you see all those black squares. Did you know that when Israel and Judah, so I'm talking about like right here, all these. When Israel and Judah split, Israel did not have one good king. If you look at this entire, scroll up a little bit. If you look at this whole thing, they're all black. They're all bad, all bad kings. None of them serve God. So Judah, you see you have Rehoboam was bad. I can't pronounce these guys' names. He was bad. And then, and then you have like Asa, I don't know, Asa, whatever. Uh, he was good, right? He's, he's white, so he reigned for a long time. Then you have this guy who was like on the border. So white basically just means that they served God the way King David did, okay? And then the gray is like they served God, but they also did some bad things. It was kind of like, you know, and then black is like they were bad, okay? But one thing that you can notice is that the black squares are always shorter. They're always shorter than the white squares, okay? Because when you were bad, you didn't reign a, whole, a very long time. A lot of these guys were assassinated by the people of their own country. They were killed or God killed them or God uh, brought some country against them and they died. Like, so they didn't reign very long. But scroll down. We're going to talk about Manasseh. He's bad, but he reigned a really, really long time. Why? Does anybody know why? We'll talk about it, but does anybody know why he reigned a long time? He repented. Perfect. So we're going to talk about this dude who was so bad. He was terrible. So um, I want to kind of show you a couple things. So in 2 Kings, the, the story of Manasseh is talked about twice in the Bible. It's in 2 Kings, and then it's also in 2 Chronicles, Okay. 2 Kings gives kind of a synopsis of what happened. It doesn't really go into detail about Manasseh. 2 Chronicles does. So in 2 Kings 1 and 2, we're going to read about Manasseh. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign. Hang on one second. Who puts a 12-year-old in charge of anything? I don't know. That's where they went wrong the first time. No. Um, and he reigned 50 and 5 years in Jerusalem, which was an insanely long time. And his mother's name was... Somebody want to try it? Hephzibah? Perfect. Yes. I'm so bad at these names. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord after the abominations of the heathen whom the Lord cast out before the children of Israel. How would you like that description in the Bible? 
that you did evil in the sight of I wouldn't, I mean, I wouldn't like that. But that's what, uh, that's the description they give of Manasseh right at the beginning. He was 12 years old and he was bad. So I'm a, I'm a history buff. I love history. So please bear with me. This is one of those messages that's like long takeoff, short flight, short landing. Like, so just bear with me for a little bit, okay, as I, my inner geek comes out. So most of the time when kings, especially in Israel and Judah, they did this thing called a co-regency, which is like when the, when the son was about to be crowned as king, the father and the son would reign together for a couple years, and then he would pass it off to his son, okay? Usually it was at death, you know, when the father died, then the son went. But they did this co-regency thing, and uh, it's very possible um, that Manasseh and his son, or his, his father, Hezekiah, reigned together for a, for a couple years before Manasseh became king, okay? The whole idea of doing that was to ensure that the policies that the father had put in place continues through, um, you know, it's, it's really like a, uh, like a kingship play, right, to, um, to encourage the son to continue in the way that the father did. That's, that's the idea anyways. Well, that didn't happen because if you know anything about Hezekiah, he was a good king. He was great. He got rid of the idols. He, he, he instituted that Judah worship God, worship Yahweh, and make sacrifices to Yahweh, not, not to any other idols, not to any other gods. So he, he was a good king. And uh, Manasseh was not. So Hezekiah turned the nation of Judah back to God and got rid of the idols. Uh, the co-regency was supposed to make sure that Manasseh continued in that, to continue in the worship of God. But that didn't happen. Um, when, when Hezekiah died, Manasseh took this hard left turn, right, and did the exact opposite. So I made a list of all of the bad things that Manasseh did. So we'll talk about them for a second. Number one, he worshiped the host of heaven. That's what the Bible says. He worshiped the host of heaven. What does that mean? That means, what's that? Yes, the stars, the sun, the moon. Uh, the ancient Egyptians, they had the sun god, Ra, right? Like the, that was like their, their main deity, and they worshiped all these other uh, celestial bodies. So the host of heaven was like the stars and the planets, and, and they worshiped these. And it actually says that, uh, that Manasseh set up altars to all of them, to the whole host of heaven. So he had altars for stars, he had altars for the sun, for the moon, for planets, like whatever, all in the house of God. So he did that. The Bible says that he made his children's pass through the fire. Okay? There was, a, there was a cult that was going on at that time. It was the cult of Molech. And basically what it was, it comes from the name Melech, which is a Hebrew word for king. But they kind of twisted it to this, this horrible thing. And they, would, um, they built this. It was an altar, but it was like this bull. It was, it was like a bullhead human body, and it had hands out like this, okay? And it was all hollow on the inside, and they would light fire until it was just so hot. To, when you touched it, you would just burn, and it, it just, the metal was like singeing. And what they would do is uh, they would lay their kids on that thing, on the hands, and just, that was their sacrifice. It was terrible. It was horrible. But Manasseh, in Second Kings, it said, made his son pass through the fire. In Second Chronicles, it says his children, so like all of them. And then he set up idols in the temple of God, the idols of, of Baal and Asherah. And 
He forsook the promises and teachings of God. He tore down the godly society that Hezekiah had restored in Judah. The Bible says that Manasseh caused all of Judah to sin. And it says that he shed innocent blood until it was enough to fill Jerusalem from one end to the other. Most people would, would assume that he killed the prophets or that he tried to kill the prophets, the Levites, the priests in the temple, that he tried to kill anybody who still worshiped God. And he, he just did this as, as a, a power play, essentially. It, the Bible also says that he practiced witchcraft, astrology, magic, and the occult, and he sponsored the Assyrian astral cult, which worshiped the stars. It also says that he dealt with a familiar spirit. A familiar spirit comes from the Greek word familiaris, which is a servant. And basically a familiar spirit, all it is, is somebody trying to control a demon to make them your servant. And they would give you advice. So he dealt with a familiar spirit. This guy was bad. He was terrible. He consulted magicians and, and seers and, uh, and all of these terrible things uh, for advice. Now, what was going on at the time um, this was pretty interesting, okay? Again, just stick with me because I'm a total geek. But um, there are, uh, during, when I was doing some research, the Assyrians kept really good records. And the Assyrians were basically uh, Judah's enemy at this time. They were the empire, right? Like they were the, this was shortly before the Babylonian phase, okay? The Assyrians took really good records. They were terrible people. They would skin people alive, they would, uh, you know, put you on stakes and beat you until you died. Like, they were just horrible. And their whole culture centered around violence and warfare, and it was bad. So, um, but there are Assyrian records that mention Manasseh. Is anybody familiar with uh, the feudalism that really came to during the Middle Ages where there was like a king, and then he had these vassals that paid him tribute, and then the vassals had servants, and it was like this big pyramid scheme, essentially? <laughs> But Manasseh was a vassal of the Assyrian government. So he paid them tribute on a regular basis just to kind of keep the political uh, climate okay. So he agreed to pay them tribute. So um, in 2 Kings 21 and 9, it says, and this is speaking of Manasseh and the people of Judah, but they hearken not. So um, before that, it talks about God giving a warning to them through the prophets. And then it says, but they hearkened not. They didn't pay attention to it. And Manasseh seduced them to do more evil than did the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the children of Israel. That is a powerful statement because what God is, or, or what, the, what the Bible is saying about Manasseh is that he was worse than the Philistines. He was worse than all of the other cultures, the enemies of Israel. He was worse than all of them. That's what that scripture is saying. I wouldn't ever want to want that to be the description of my life. <laughs> but God did give Manasseh a chance to repent. God gave the, the people of Judah a chance because he warned them. He said, if you don't stop, there's going to be trouble. And they didn't listen. They didn't worry about it. So in 2 Chronicles, that's basically the end of 2 Kings. It says, actually, the, a couple of scriptures down, it says, is not the the uh, story of Manasseh recorded in the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah. So that's what is going to take us to 2 Chronicles 33, 10 and 11. And this is a little bit more expanded. So it says, And the Lord spake to Manasseh and to his people, but they would not hearken. They wouldn't listen. Wherefore the Lord brought upon them the captains of the hosts of the kings of Assyria, 
which took Manasseh among the thorns and bound him with fetters and carried him to Babylon. Does anybody know what it means to be uh, taken among the thorns? It is not fun. So basically um, what they did is when they captured Manasseh, this is a, a, a way to just humiliate somebody. When they captured a king, what the Assyrians would do is they wouldn't kill him. They would take him prisoner, but they would stick like a bull ring in their nose, like right through the cartilage right here, put a chain on it, and then a chain around your neck, and they would drag you to the capital city. In this case, historians don't know why they took him to Babylon. It was at the end of the Assyrian reign, so the Assyrians were probably... Uh, paying tribute to the Babylons, so they brought, it, it's very possible that they brought Manasseh as a prize to Babylon. It's very possible, as, as like a gift to the leadership there. But they, they completely humiliated this guy. He deserved it. I mean, he was terrible, but they completely humiliated him. The point I want to make, I know that was a long, drawn-out history of Manasseh's life. I could go in more detail, but the point that I wanted to make is that Manasseh took his entire life, and built an image of himself that he thought was successful. He took his entire life and, and, and built up this, uh, uh, just, uh, this, this idea that I'm successful and this is the way to succeed in this world. That was Manasseh's mindset when he was doing this evil thing. It, you know, it, it, uh, we always, we kind of look at it like, well, he was just, being bad and he was just being evil. No, he thought he was being successful when he was doing these things. So he did all of this just to be successful. So in one moment though, that entire image that he had of himself shattered in pieces all over the floor. He was being dragged to Babylon by his nose of all places, by his nose. I just, when I, I saw this picture, it was like an artist's drawing of what happened. And I just see this, it's like a big bull ring with chains attached to it. And it was just crazy. But um, Manasseh was brought to the possible lowest point in his entire life. In one moment, really. It was a long time coming, but it happened all of a sudden. So I want to ask, does anybody know what a mosaic is? What's a mosaic? Hmm? Exactly. Um, did everybody hear that? So a mosaic is, is uh, pieces of, um, can be broken glass or, you know, just, uh, just bits, right? Like that's put together to make a picture. So I brought a mosaic with me. This is one that Tasha did a while ago. She's the artsy one out of the two. Um, this is a mosaic. You see all the broken glass is kind of put together to make a picture. So the glass before this was made didn't have a rose on it. it. Like this wasn't the original picture. But you take all these like broken glass and you make something out of it. It's, it's pretty cool. Like there are mo mosaics are one of the oldest uh, forms of artistry. Mosaics, pottery, and painting are some of the oldest forms of, of history. Like when excuse me, when, uh, when archaeologists go and do these digs, a lot of times they find mosaics. They found mosaics of the Assyrian culture. They found mosaics of, you know, just everything pretty much. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, a really cool, it's a really cool piece of artwork. 
and this is a rose, but uh, it, didn't, it wasn't a rose to begin with. So 2 Chronicles 33, 12 through 13, and then I'm going to skip to 15 through 17. This is Manasseh when he was in prison. It says, and when he was in affliction, he besought the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers and prayed unto him. And he was entreated of him and heard his... Sub so this is God, right? Uh, Manasseh prayed unto him and God was entreated of him and heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord, he was God. And verse 15 talks about what Manasseh did after that life-changing moment. Verse 15 says, And he took away the strange gods and the idol out of the house of the Lord and all the altars that he built in the mount of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem and cast them out of the city. And he repaired the altar of the Lord and sacrificed thereon peace offerings and thank offerings and commanded Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. How can this man go from being so far left to being so far right? How is that possible? You know, we, um, we have this tendency as humans to think that some sins are worse than others. But did you know that to God, because he's holy and pure and is without sin, doesn't matter what it is, it's all the same. Do you know that? So we, we kind of look at Manasseh and we're like, this guy was terrible. He's beyond redemption. Like he killed his kids. He killed other people, like innocent people. He blasphemed the name of God by putting these altars in the temple of God. The Bible says that when he did that, it says that he put altars in the temple of God where God said his name shall be forevermore. That's blasphemy. He committed blasphemy against God. He didn't even care what God had to say because when God tried to warn him, he's like, ah, eh, whatever, I'll just do my own thing. He didn't care. So, but Manasseh's life changed in prison. Manasseh's life changed when he was brought to the lowest possible point in his life. Because in a moment, his life shattered in front of him in mounds of broken glass. What he thought was success, what he thought was right, and what he wanted to do was in shambles at his feet. But when, when he repented, if you read closely, uh, it doesn't give us his prayer, but it says, number one, he humbled himself. Number two, he prayed and he repented those are the three components of our opening scripture. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. God gives a promise here. If we do those things, he will hear from heaven. He will forgive our sin and he will heal our land. That's the promise of God. Manasseh knew that, well, I don't, actually, I don't even know if he knew, right? Because when we mess up, the enemy comes along and is like, well, you're not good enough. God will never forgive you. Maybe that's what was going through Manasseh's mind. But at least he had enough sense in his head to say, you know what? I messed up and I'm going to try and repent. I'm going to try and make it right with God. And God heard him. God honored the promise that he gave in 2 Chronicles. Because Manasseh humbled himself. He prayed. He sought the face of God. And he repented. He turned from his wicked ways. And God heard his prayer, 
And it actually says he was entreated by his prayer. God was moved by the prayer of Manasseh. I wish I knew what Manasseh prayed because it doesn't, it doesn't tell us. The Bible actually says that his prayer is recorded in a book in the, the Chronicles of the Seers. That's what it says. But we, we don't know what book that is. We don't have that book in our Bible. His prayer is somewhere, and I wish I knew what it was. But it's, it's to me, Manasseh was one of the greatest pictures of God's mercy in the Bible. You know, we see, we see guys like Saul who persecuted the church. We see, um, you know, we see guys in the New Testament that did bad things, but God forgave them, right? Because in the New Testament, Jesus had died. He said, if you repent and you're baptized in Jesus' name, you shall receive the gifts of the Holy Ghost. It was under a new covenant. You didn't have to sacrifice anymore, and God forgave them, okay? But this happened in the Old Testament. He didn't sacrifice in prison, he didn't have a goat. He didn't have a bull to kill. All he did was pray, and he repented, and God forgave him. When he, got back to, when he got back to Judah and back into his kingship, it says that he offered peace offerings and thank offerings. I'm sure that was because he was thankful that God had forgiven him of the great evil that he had done. <coughs> but I want to read, actually, before I get there, I'm getting ahead of my notes. One other thing that you have to understand is that the Assyrians and the Babylonians did not release prisoners. They didn't. They held them for a while. They killed them. They did whatever. They tortured them. They made public examples of them, whatever. Especially the kings. They didn't release them. But for some reason, Manasseh was released, and he went back to being king of Judah. That's something that only God can do. Only God can set someone free and restore their life and make a new picture out of it. Only God can do that. So God put Manasseh back in kingship, and he turned his life over to God. Unfortunately, Manasseh's son turned his back on God, and then at that point, they were overwhelmed by the Babylonians, and it was just not good. But Manasseh is an example of the artwork of God. This is Manasseh. This is what Manasseh is. He's a mosaic. He thought he had it all together, and then when his life shattered in front of him, God took the pieces and made a new picture. God took the pieces and made something new out of it. Psalms 51, 16 through 7. This is a psalm of David, and it's really interesting because it's in the Old Testament. For thou desirest not sacrifice, else I would give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, thou thou wilt not despise. What that is saying is that God is not really interested in all of the, the bloodshed in the Old Testament and all of the sacrifices in the Old Testament. Unfortunately, that was something that was necessary, and that's a different Bible study for a different time, but that was necessary. God didn't want that. The original plan of God was not to have people sacrifice animals to try and cover your sins because the blood of animals can't cover sin. But it took Jesus Christ the blood of a perfect man to die for our sins to cover our sins. That's what it took. So what, what David is saying here is that really, God, you don't want all this bloodshed of these animals. It's necessary, but you don't want it. What you want is somebody who is truly repentant. What you want is somebody who's truly heartbroken over their sins and they want to make it right. That's what repentance is all about. 
God looks for a truly repentant heart. And we're all sinful people. We all fall short of the glory of God. So repentance is a necessary uh, action in our walk with God. Even now, we still have to repent because we still mess up. We still don't do things right. But we've all been guilty of doing what we want to do. We've all been guilty of trying to build a life based on me and not God. We've all done that in some form or fashion. I know none of us here have gone to the lengths of, uh, the lengths of uh, like consulting demons and killing people and you know just doing the things that Manasseh did. But sin is sin. It doesn't matter. Sin is sin. And we've all tried to build our own lives on our own kingdom on me and didn't even worry about God. We've all done that in some form or fashion. But I just want to tell you that, that God is in a business of making beautiful things out of our messes. God does that all the time. Jesus Christ died for our sins so that we could obtain mercy. Not, not by any works that we do, not by any, any begging or pleading with God, but God gives mercy and grace. The Bible says that it's new every day. So we don't obtain mercy through living a, a certain way or, you know, like begging God to give us mercy. No, we, God gives it freely. We just have to ask. You know, 2 Corinthians 5, 15 through 17 is a, is a really cool scripture. It says, and that he died for all. This is speaking of Jesus. And so Jesus died for all that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves. So it's not about me. That's what this is saying. It's not about me but unto him which died for them and rose again. It's not about me anymore. It's about Jesus. That's what our life should be based on. And then verse 16, wherefore hence, henceforth know we no man after the flesh, yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth we know him no more. So Jesus is, is dead. He's not in the flesh anymore, but he's risen, he's risen again. And then verse 17, therefore if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away, and behold, all things have become new. When we turn our lives over to God, he turns us into something new. We're not the same man or woman that we were before. We're different. We're new. We're mosaic, if you will. Repentance is such a major part in our walk with God because Acts 2.38 says, Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. You know, Acts 2, these men had realized that they had sacrificed Jesus, the Messiah. They had, they had put to death the one who promised he was going to come and deliver Israel and, and, and save his people. And they had killed him. They put him on a cross. He rose again. But they, were, they realized they had done something wrong. <laughs> so they asked Peter, what are we supposed to do about all this? We just killed the Messiah. And that was the answer Peter gave them. Repent. Number one, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. I believe that Acts 2.38 is a parallel, if you will, a parallel to what David was really getting at when he was saying, God, you don't, you don't desire these sacrifices of animals. What you desire is a repentant heart. And that's what, that's what Peter was saying to these people is you have to repent. 
You have to truly be sorry for what you did. So on a daily basis, we have to repent. I know that repentance is not a popular message because everybody just wants to think, hey, I'm perfect. <laughs> I mean, right? I know nobody here thinks that. <laughs> but repentance is something that is so, so needed, and it has to be so regular in our lives. Daily, really daily, because we do fall short daily. Sin, do you know what the definition of sin is? Just missing the mark. When you miss the mark, of what God had said is, is righteous and what we need to do. We miss that on a daily basis. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring this to a close. That's, um, if uh, somebody can help me close. <laughs> Tanya, thank you. Um, so the, the thing that I really take away from this message or, or from this study, really, is, is all it is, is just studying Manasseh and studying repentance and all that, but what I really take away from it is if Manasseh can be forgiven of sins, I can too. <laughs> if Manasseh can be forgiven for sacrificing his kids, I can be forgiven for lying. If Manasseh can be forgiven for setting up idols in the house of God, imagine that. That's, somebody, that's like somebody coming in here and setting up all these idols to all these different gods in God's dwelling place. If he can be forgiven from, of that, I can be forgiven of sin. I hope all of you understand the far-reaching nature of God's mercy. There's nothing that you could ever do. There's, there's no length that you can ever run away from God. You're never too far from God. God is always as close as the mention of his name. Regardless of where you're at or I'm at in my life, God is always as close as the name of Jesus. And that promise in 2 Chronicles, if you pray, if you seek the face of God, if you turn from your wicked ways, if you humble yourself, that promise is still valid here. That's what Manasseh was doing. That's what all of these men during Acts 2.38, that's what all of them did. But we have to repent. No one in this room has done even half of the evil things that Manasseh has done. Nobody has. Not in this room. I'm sure there are some people that have, but not in this room. But what happens is like when we do mess up, so we have like, we have the flesh, right? That we deal with on a daily basis that wants to do things that, um, you know, you deal with the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, right? Like that's dealing with our flesh on a daily basis. And then, so you got the flesh here, you got the enemy here <laughs> that's just, you know, waiting for you to mess up. And then you have God, right? But when we, when we end up falling into our flesh and we do something that is not what God would want us to do, when we slip up, let's just say, you got the enemy and all his whatever, whispering in your ear, you're not good enough. You, you know, even yourself, you have your own flesh whispering to you too. You're not good enough. You messed up. You went too far this time. I know because I've been there. I didn't always live for God. I grew up in church, but I didn't always live for God. I was honestly, I was, I was like Manasseh when it said God spoke to him and he didn't listen. That's how I was. So I can relate to this. I don't know if any of you can relate to anything I said today, but I know I can. 
And I was in that situation where I didn't care. But in one moment, what I thought was going well for me ended up not going so well anymore. And, you know, not to give you any details, but when I was young, stuff happened. God kind of put things into perspective for me because, and, and I didn't want it, but it happened. You know, God has a tendency of allowing things to happen to kind of bring us back to him. You know, that's why Manasseh was taken over by the Assyrians. God let it happen. God's like, okay, you don't want to listen to me? I'm going to back off. I'm not going to protect you anymore. And I'm going to let these guys just have their way with you. And then we'll see where we're at. So God allows things to happen. And you know, I just want to say this. Because we have a society that thinks, well, if God is so merciful and so gracious and, and so loving, then why do all these evil things happen? Okay, that's valid, right? We, we do hear that. People say that. But if, if God were to make everything right and make life so easy, we would have no need of faith. That verse in 2 Chronicles that we opened with, there would be no need of that because that's a promise from God saying, okay, there's gonna be bad things. Why did he have to say he's gonna heal our land or forgive our sin? If he makes everything right, then, you know, it's fine. But God allows things to happen to bring perspective into our life. And there are terrible things that happen all over the world. I had um, one of my good friends, is uh, he does not believe in God, he's an atheist which is fine, we have wonderful conversations. But he, he, he told me that once. He's like, well, if God's so good, why do all these bad things happen? He's a banker, right? We're both bankers, we work for BMO Harris. And I was like, well, you know, um, we have knowledge to help people with their finances. Why don't you go around and just help everybody and make everything right? And he's like, well, some people don't want my help. I can only help people if they come meet me. Well, same with God. God's a gentleman, right? Like he's not gonna bust the door of your life down and say, hey, get things right. No, God doesn't operate like that. The only way that God can help is when we come to him and we say, okay, I messed up. <laughs> I need your mercy. If we could all stand and close our eyes I just want you to know that no matter where you're at in your life, you're never too far gone. You can't ever run beyond the reach of God. That's not possible. God gives mercy and grace. It's new every day. And I just want you to know that God's an artist. He made this world that we live on. He made the intricate details of our body. He knows us through and through. He knows the amount of hairs that's on your head. And he loves each and every one of you. And God's always willing to put the pieces back together again. He's always ready and willing to do that for all of us. And he desires to make every one of us a work of art. You know, there's a, there's a really cool um, story in Jeremiah, I believe it is, where Jeremiah goes down. Uh, God tells him to go down to the potter's house. 
and just go just go watch, right? So he he goes into the the potter's house and he sees uh, the gentleman throwing pottery and making this uh, this vessel, right? And it's it's a uh, it's a really cool picture because um, who here has thrown pottery before? Okay, not too many. But if you know anything about throwing pottery, you can't take your hands off of it. The moment you take your hands off that piece of clay, it flies off the board and it's a mess. I know from personal experience. But what's so cool about the thought of God being a potter and we're the clay is that he has to, a potter has to apply pressure to the clay to get the desired shape. The potter has to cut pieces of the clay away. The potter has to take impurities out of it. But his hands never leave the clay. They never leave the clay. They can't. If they do, it ruins the entire piece of artwork. That's how God works in our lives. When we allow him to shape us to what he wants us to be, he's got to apply some pressure sometimes. He's got to pull us. He's got to cut some things away and he's got to take out impurities, but his hands are always on you. Always. Always. If you're comfortable, I wonder if we could just take a moment to examine our hearts down here together as a family and allow God to work on us. Allow God to put the pieces back together. Allow God to shape us into what he wants us to be. In Jesus' name, I invite you all.